All right, it's a, uh, it's a day to give out a couple of awards. The award for best coordination between mask and dress goes to Christina Wirt. Yeah. Everybody can't see the mask, but I saw it on the stool behind you. And an award for hidden talent, Scott, on the drums this morning. I don't think I knew you could play the drums. Amazing. The things we learn. Yeah, that's right. Okay, today we are finishing our series of sermons from the book of Philippians. We're going to think about generosity today. I'll define it this way, sacrificial giving of resources to meet real needs so that God's redeeming work can be done in the world. When we're doing that giving, it would be time, uh, finances, energy, skill, talent, knowledge, wisdom, sacrificial giving of those kinds of resources so that God's redeeming work can be done in the world. It takes strength to give like that. Where does that strength come from? It's a question we'll be asking this morning. We'll answer it from the final section of this letter written by the Apostle Paul. He was under house arrest in Rome, so we're going to look at a map here. And um, Paul would have been over here in Rome uh, under house arrest, and he has friends over here in Philippi. Back then, it was in a region called Macedonia. Today, it's part of the nation of Greece, uh, about 700 miles away from where he is. They want Paul's ministry to continue. Their church was started by Paul showing up in Philippi and talking to a woman named Lydia about Jesus. And pretty soon, a group of worshipers of Jesus start gathering in her home. And now, 12, 15 years later, they want his ministry to continue, even though he's 700 miles away and in prison. And so they send a man named Epaphroditus. We'll hear his name in the Scripture reading today. I'm sure James has practiced it. He's going to pronounce it flawlessly, right? They send a man named Epaphroditus to Rome with financial gifts to uh, meet the needs of Paul and his ministry team. And then Epaphroditus stays, and he joins that ministry team too. And so a couple of chapters earlier, we heard Paul referring to him as a fellow soldier, someone who has really rolled up his sleeves and gotten involved in everything that he's doing. And so Paul is writing at the end of this letter to say thank you. And as he does that, we'll hear him remembering a long history of generosity. Some of it is their generosity toward him, but some of it is a long history of God's generosity. Let's listen as James reads for us. Thank you. The scripture reading today is from the chapter Philippians 4, the verses 14 through 23. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord, would you, um, would you tune our hearts? They are easily distracted, and we ask that we would be focused on what you want us to learn from you and about you today. So take your pen and inscribe your will and your wisdom on our hearts an ink that would never fade, but would stay there forever. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> My dad closed his career by serving as the um, director of public works in my home county in rural South Carolina. And he has a lot of funny stories to tell. One of uh, his responsibilities was to oversee the county landfill. One day he got a phone call from some employees at a, um, a recycling and uh, garbage drop-off site. They said, Mr. Buddy, we think you may need to come down here and check something out. We found some big plastic bags and they're full of money. Big black plastic, plastic garbage bags, right, full of money. And so uh, people are getting kind of excited. They're like, nobody's seen this amount of money in my home county, maybe in forever. And um, so daddy drives down there and, and, and all this excitement and kind of joy of what, what could you do with all of this money if, if you got to keep it? Now, you, you probably don't if you find it in these circumstances, right? The, but that joy, even, even the kinds of questions you would ask, you know, what could you do if you had all of this? The answer is you could do nothing with it. Because they opened some of the bags and started to go through them, they found that each bill was blank on one side. <laughs> Every one of them was counterfeit. The whole, every, all of it was worthless. And uh, so, you know, the, the, the boring part of the story continues with the FBI getting involved and all this stuff. And I don't even know if they ever found anyone, but someone clearly had, um, had messed up their, their uh, print run and thrown away the scraps. That kind of difference is really important when it comes to generosity. If, if you have a skill like playing the drums and someone asks you to use that in a way that benefits other people or in a way that benefits the ministry of a church or some other effort that's good for your neighbors or that's good for God's people, how, how do you do that? Where do, where do you find strength to give resources, time, money, effort, energy, skill, wisdom to meet the needs of other people so that God's redeeming work can be done in the world. Well, if you find that strength for generosity in something that really is good, it will bring you great joy. 
You, you won't be constantly thinking of how much it hurts to sacrifice for other people. You might feel the pinch and the sting sometimes. And, but there will be a joy if that generosity is rooted in something real. But if you try to root generosity in something counterfeit, it will not last. It cannot last. Because it isn't really generosity at all. Money printed on one side ain't really money. It can't do any good. Let's explore that difference today. We'll start with um, some background. Kind of the story of generosity from this church in ancient Philippi. The Apostle Paul is writing to thank them for supporting his ministry. We look at verse 18 and we hear that that had a financial component and a personal component. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, meaning I, I, I have everything I need. Uh, Paul is under house arrest. Where is his food going to come from? Uh, he is sending people back and forth on journeys to surrounding towns to preach about Jesus. Where will they get the money they need for their meals? Um, where does the rent for the house he is in, in Rome, under house arrest, come from? He can't practice his trade of tent making while he's under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman soldier. Um, so here he is saying, you've sent more than enough money to meet all of my needs. Thank you. And then he goes on to say, I, I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Well, Epaphroditus didn't just bring money and then say, see you later, Paul. He joined the team, and he became an invaluable part of everything that this apostle called by Jesus to spread good news about him to as many nations as possible. Epaphroditus joined the team. That kind of generous giving from the Christians in Philippi to the apostle Paul continued for over a decade. Verses 15 and 16 remind us of that. You Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, you were the only church that entered into this kind of partnership of giving and receiving with me. Way back in the, in the beginning, when you were first hearing about Jesus, you were quick to practice this ministry of generosity. Thank you. And now, writing 12, 14 years later, that relationship has continued he says in verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Uh, when Paul left Macedonia, and the, the first time he went to Philippi, we find it recorded in the book of Acts, the next city he went to is Thessalonica. And he's saying, look, more than 10 years ago, you, you got on board early in this kind of generous, sacrificial giving even when no other church in your region did so, uh, and you gave in a way that's sacrificial. How do we know that? Verse 14 says, it was kind of you to share my trouble. It's a strong word. To share my affliction would be another way to put it in, in English. How did they share his affliction? Well, we find in the book of 2 Corinthians that this church in Philippi, over this 10-plus year period, 
rarely had enough for themselves. So anytime they gave, it, it, it hurt. And yet they gave out of some resource of joy that enabled them to do that when nobody else was doing it and to keep doing it for over 10 years so that whatever Paul was doing, it could keep happening and extend throughout Greece as he leaves Philippi and goes to Thessalonica and goes on from there to the rest of Greece, according to the book of Acts, and then ultimately to Rome. There is something so good that these people are willing to sacrifice so that strangers, people they have never met, near Thessalonica, just a few miles down the road, and far throughout Greece and even 700 miles away in Rome, could experience what they have experienced. What is it that's so good that grips their heart with that much joy that they want to see it multiplied? It's real riches. This is not just a story of the generosity of human beings who lived in Philippi a long time ago. This is the story of God's generosity I know how it works. I'm a pastor. When I say generosity, some of you go, this is the part of the show where somebody says, you need to give more money to the church. and makes me feel guilty. Even if I've been giving generously, I'm made to feel like I haven't been giving generously enough. And when the word generosity comes up, it is pastor code for gimme, 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 gimme. Notice the assumption when we respond like that. We're assuming that when we talk about generosity, we're talking about human generosity. But let's look carefully at the biblical story. (laughs) When we talk about generosity in the Bible, we start by talking about God, who is gloriously and abundantly rich. Let's listen to verse 19 again. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. According to his glorious riches. And where do you look to find his most glorious riches? In Christ Jesus. You you, you look at this God who has enough wealth, this fabulously gloriously rich God and you see not only does he have enough to meet all of our needs here's the amazing part of the story he is willing to share that with us it isn't just that he has loads of riches and now somehow we have to convince him to share it with us he is a generous God Notice the assumption of what Paul is saying. He he is not assuming a stingy God. He is not assuming a reluctant giver. He's not assuming a God who has enough but is waiting to see if we're worth investing in. He's assuming a generous Father who for some reason would be willing to look at a church that's been poor for over a decade and say, I'll meet your every need. 
What is that reason? It is Christ Jesus. Jesus is the reason that the Father's heart is a generous heart toward his children when they are in need. Jesus is the reason that God is generous toward us. He's also the proof of God's generosity toward us. You want to see God being generous? Look at the cross and look at the resurrection. This is a twofold rhythm that you find throughout the New Testament. You find it throughout this little short letter of Philippians. And so back in chapter 2, this great song about Jesus and all that he's done is broken into two verses. How he humbled himself in crucifixion and how God the Father exalted him in the resurrection. And you look at that story and you see God being generous in the crucifixion. God is generous to give himself to identify with us in our weakness and in our need and in our suffering and in our shame. That God would stoop low and become obedient to death, even death on a cross, to bear the shame and identify with us. So that if you're having a hard time financially, if you're having a hard time relationally, if you're having a hard time in any other way, you're not alone. The God of the universe has given himself to come close and draw near and identify with our shame, with our weakness, with our need. And not just to identify, but to endure. To endure the suffering and the shame that should be ours because we are the ones who said to this gloriously rich God, we don't need you. We can make it on our own. And God draws near and he endures all of the justice that should fall on somebody whose heart is that ungrateful toward the most generous giver who ever existed to say, we don't appreciate your generosity. We don't need it. We've got it. We can make it on our own. Well, justice has to be done. And Jesus draws near and he endures that justice on the cross. And then in the resurrection, we see God the Father removing all the shame of, of that justice, that guilt, all the shame of what it meant to be crucified and treated as subhuman in the Roman world. And in the resurrection, we see God generously giving to His Son Jesus everything needed to reverse all the suffering and the sorrow he had endured and when the new testament promises that we will one day be resurrected it is saying the father gave generously to the son and the son will give generously to us as peter said on that great day we get foretaste and appetizers now every time we remember the resurrection of jesus but it's a down payment saying a great day of generosity is coming. And between now and then, because of all that God has done by giving us His Son in the cross and the resurrection, we have confidence that He is able to meet all of our needs out of His glorious, generous riches and wealth in Christ Jesus. 
able to meet our every need. Well, let's put it in context. Last week we talked about how um, Paul writes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's not a promise that all of life will be easy. You see God's generosity, not just in the resurrection, but also in the cross. The generous God shows up in cross moments as well as resurrection moments. And so we know that he will meet our needs in moments of abundance and in moments of trouble and affliction. We know that he will meet our needs whether the need is for patient endurance while things are so hard or sometimes he meets the needs by, by making things easier. We don't know what the circumstances will be, whether they will be abundance or lack, suffering or joy, but we know that whatever the circumstance, he is able to meet our need. He was there with us and for us in the cross of Christ. He was there with us and for us in the resurrection of Christ. That's where our confidence comes from, and that's why we overflow with worship. Right? Paul says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. I received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, and they were a fragrant offering. It's language from the Old Testament about sacrifices used in worship. The gifts you gave, the generosity you expressed, it was an act of worship to God, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Our hearts overflow with worship. So he says in verse 19, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And then look where verse 20 goes, straight to worship. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I got a few other greetings I want to put at the end of my letter to close it out right, but I just have to worship for a minute. Christians don't give because giving is good. Christians give because the gospel is good. We don't give because it's good to give. We give because we see the generosity of a God who would draw near, who would, who would present the greatest gift He has to offer for our good, which is His only Son. And He would not withhold that gift from us. This is why we're certain that one day the feast that we're preparing for it's not going to withhold any good thing. Why? Because he's already given us the best he had to offer. His own son. We give because the gospel is good. That's why we want people near and far to hear and embrace and live out the good news of who Jesus is. That's why we have confidence that along the way he's going to meet our needs. And that's what sets us free to practice generosity. If we're full of anxiety, if we think the money's only printed on one side, and eventually somebody will flip it over and see that we don't have that much to offer, then we don't feel free. But when we know that we're loved by this God who will meet our every need, He will take care of us no matter whether our circumstances are hard or good. That's the real motivation for generosity according 
to life in Jesus. It's not the only motivation that exists in our world, though. There are some counterfeits. We should probably take a look at those. It helps us to recognize the real thing, right? Oh, the real thing has green ink on both sides of the paper. Oh, (laughs) that helps me know that this thing I'm looking at is not real. It's blank on one side. Two common counterfeits across human cultures. One is this. Generosity is a way to prove my worthiness. And a second is generosity is a way to guarantee my comfort. In Paul's world, there is a pattern that scholars and sociologists call a patron-client relationship. So the, the patron had the wealth and would give generously. The client would receive. And there were some unwritten rules that everybody knew. And if you wanted to see how this works in our culture, maybe take a look at politics. So the, the incumbent who holds the power endorsing, right, they're the patron in this scenario, endorsing the hopeful candidate who's the client. If you want to be endorsed by, by the incumbent, you first got to say, I am worthy. You will not be wasting your political influence if you offer it to me. I'm not going to lose the election. Let me prove to you that I am fit, that I'm worthy. And then the patron over here would say, okay, well, guess what? I'm going to give you what it takes to win this election, and that's going to be my way of guaranteeing that when I find myself in a bit of political trouble or need, you got my back. That's a patron-client kind of giving. And Paul was well aware of this. And you'll notice as you read this kind of thank you letter at the end of Philippians, there's some stuff missing. He never says, thanks, I owe you. He never says, we use that money you sent to reach 200 people who never knew Jesus before, and now they're out starting multiple other churches. Why? If he starts to talk like that, it would just be reinforcing that twisted sort of Let me prove that I was worth the gifts you sent. Let me prove my worthiness. And one day, if you're in trouble, let me know. I got your back. And so he he carefully says, let's rejoice. Let's celebrate. Thank you. But he doesn't say it in a way that reinforces these patterns. In our culture, this, this is kind of a moralistic pattern. In general, it might go something like this. Generosity is a way to prove that I'm worthy. I'm going to give more. I'm going to volunteer more. I'm going to do more ministry. I'm going to play more drums. I'm going to give away more food. I'm I'm going to start new charities. I'm I'm going to set up a a, a new nonprofit. I'm, I'm going to get really, really involved and busy as somebody who loves Jesus, trying to make this world a better place, trying to make this church a better place. I am going to do it. Because that is what will show God that he didn't waste his grace on me. I will prove that I'm a worthy recipient of his generosity. 
That is rotten to the core. God is not interested. He didn't didn't send his son because we were worth investing in. It's all about grace. It's not about showing that some of us are more worthy than others. It takes a more specific form that we call the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. Which runs like this. Generosity is a way to guarantee my comfort. The the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, isn't a gospel at all. It's blank on one side. It's all about the prosperity and the health and the wealth. And you flip over and you look for the gospel and there's nothing there. Because it runs something like this. Well, it runs like meeting these folks in an airport one day. Friends who were involved in a Christian ministry. Never met them before. We're getting to know each other. Where are you flying? We can tell all our stories. Why are you going there? Hey, we got a couple hours before the flight. Let's have lunch together. My treat. I'd be happy to buy so we can talk. And immediately the man I'm talking to says, Oh, no, 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 Pastor. We can't let you buy our lunch. We're going to buy your lunch. Because if we buy your lunch, then we will get some bigger donations to our ministry next month. Oh, okay. Let's talk a little more. So you're not buying me, I mean, this is what's going on in my head. You're not offering to buy me lunch because of friendship or because of brotherhood in Jesus. You're not offering to buy lunch because you got a generous donor who set up a fund for that. You're offering to buy me lunch because you're working on this principle that says, if I give X to God, God will give 5X back to me. That's the health and wealth gospel. That's the prosperity gospel that says giving is a way to guarantee that I will have a comfortable life. And it's why you see so many manipulative leaders who call themselves Christians who operate on that kind of principle, who say, I will live in luxury. If you give your last dollars to our ministry, I guarantee you that God will cause you to prosper financially, maritally, and your family, employment, every way. It's just an empty, bankrupt uh, promise because it's not about Jesus at all. If you're following Jesus, the two things you can guarantee someone if they sign up to follow Jesus, you will go through crucifixion and you will go through resurrection. Those are the things I can promise you. If you follow Jesus, you will experience both of those things. One of those things will come to an end. Jesus will come back and no more crucifixion, no more sorrows, no more tears, no more need, no more desperation, no more suffering. But in the meantime, if you sign up to follow Jesus, Know that the closer you get to him, the closer you will get to both of these realities. Crucifixion sorrows and resurrection joys. And he will be with you in all of it. So we can't promise a guarantee. 
that if you would just do enough and give enough, then everything will go great for you and everything will grow great for our church. Did you hear that scripture text we read earlier? Actually, Peter read it to us. It was, uh, these words of comfort after we confess our sins to God. It says essentially, everywhere there's life, there will be the aroma of death if you know Jesus. We're always carrying around in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus can also be made manifest in our bodies. You hear that pattern? Cross and resurrection, death and life. Why am I talking so much about this? Two reasons. One, this prosperity gospel, this health and wealth gospel, is really common all over the world. I thought it was just an American thing for many years. And then I started talking to friends who were spending time in Africa. I started talking to uh, Korean students in some of my classes in St. Louis. And, and I'm hearing the same story from India, from South America, from here in North America. There is this desire to twist God's generosity into something that becomes about proving that we are worthy or guaranteeing that we can be comfortable forever. In fact, though, the gospel means that we don't give like patrons who are trying to guarantee something in return. Our generosity is a response to what we received. It's not trying to get God to respond to what we're giving. It is in response to what he has already given us. And we're not giving like clients who are trying to prove our own worthiness. We have looked at the world and we have said there is only one who is worthy. And we want to celebrate him. And that's why we say to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Not to us. Not to our church. Not to our denomination. Not to the whole church wrapped up into one big ball together. There's only one who's worthy. We celebrate him. I have a friend named Terry Eves. He passed away a couple of years ago. And uh, Terry was an Old Testament professor at Erskine College while I was teaching New Testament at Erskine Seminary. I called Terry my rabbi um, because he knew the Old Testament so well. And one of his favorite sayings was, Sinai is not in Egypt. And so, you know, here's, here's the map, right? So Egypt, where God's people were held in slavery for 400 years, according to the Old Testament, maybe down in this part of Egypt, maybe up here, but somewhere in Egypt. And Sinai, Mount Sinai, where God's people were given so many commands and instructions, is not in Egypt. It's over here. It's across the Red Sea. And Mount Sinai is somewhere down in here. Uh, today its uh, name is in, in Arabic. It means Mountain of Moses. Um, at Sinai, God's people got instructions for building a tent called the tabernacle, 
later a temple. And there would be worship involving sacrifices, sometimes of animals, sometimes of food like bread, sometimes of drink like wine that would be poured out as part of the offering, or offerings of grains and fruits during harvest time. And that's all the background to the way that this verse 18 ends. Hey, church, your generosity was a fragrant offering. It was a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. But those sacrifices never earned God's love and favor for Israel. They were always a response to the love and favor and grace God had already shown. How do we know? Terry Eve's answer would always be, we know because Sinai is not in Egypt. God's people didn't go up a mountain to get a list of things that they could do to prove that they were worthy. No. God said, I am redeeming you. I have heard your cries. I am setting you free from slavery. I am demonstrating my redeeming grace for you now. And then I will give you instructions on how you are to worship and honor me. And then I will give you instructions on what sacrificial offerings ought to look like. But the redemption comes first and then the sacrifice. That's the God that we honor and worship. He calls us to generosity not to show that we're worthy, not to guarantee an easy life, but as an expression of thanksgiving and worship for what He's already done for us. He became the greatest sacrifice ever. He gave Himself to us and for us in the cross and in the resurrection. And that's why we can trust Him to meet our every need out of his glorious riches in Christ Jesus.